Blog Talk Radio. been for you, we would not be here. We open our eyes this morning, God, because you gave us the strength to open our eyes. We were able to rise because you gave us strength in our limbs and the facilities of our body. We were able to get here, God, because you blessed us and brought us the way of safety and did not allow harm to come to us, Lord. We're grateful to again come into your presence because we know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And as we come before you today, have your way, Lord. Let flesh be crucified that you might be glorified, that your people might be edified in the name of Jesus. For God in you is life. And that's what we seek, God, life eternal life God we pray oh God today that you will touch every person that have come seeking you Lord bind the hand of the devil God rebuke the hand of the enemy Lord 
God, let your anointing that resonates in this place even now. God, let there be an outpouring on your people. We need you, God, to take us to another level in you, Lord. God, we're faced with demonic forces, God. Evil spirits have come up against us, Lord, and we need to be fortified with your power. God, we can't make it on our own strength, God. We don't have enough to stand on, Lord. But we know, God, that your joy is our strength. Fill us up on today in the name of Jesus. Somebody have come this morning burdened down, God, with the issues of life, God. Somebody, God, is in the battle of their life. Somebody's God, fighting in their mind and in their spirit, Lord, where the devil have come in to war against them, Lord. But we thank you, God, because we know greater are you that's within us than he that is within this world, God. We know, God, that you are a deliverer, Lord, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're no short of your promise, Lord, and you're able to deliver us, Lord. Touch us on today, Lord. We need you like never before. Fill us up with the Holy Ghost, God, and give us a refilling, Lord, that when we leave here today, Lord, huh? we can leave with your anointing, Lord, huh? that as we meet men and women, boys and girls, huh? they might be converted to know who you are, Lord. Huh? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Huh? We thank you because you are a healer. Huh? You're the God that healeth thee, huh? and healing is in your wings, huh? and you're able to touch our feeble bodies. Huh? You're able to save our troubled souls, huh? and in the name of Jesus, huh? bind every demon, Lord, huh? every demonic force, Lord. Huh? God, that comes to keep us in the same place, Lord. We're willing, God, to surrender and say yes to your will, Lord. We're willing to turn our lives, God, over into your hands, Lord, because we come to the place, God, where we realize like never before, we need you, Jesus. More than anything we know, we need you, Jesus. While men are trying to find, God, solutions to this chaotic world, God, we're looking to you. Lord, because we know for every right desire, there is an answer. And Jesus, you're that answer. There's no need for us, God, to turn hither or thither, Lord. We need but to look for you, Lord, because you're the answer, God, for our troubled lives, Lord. Touch on the day, God. Break every yoke, oh God. Save on the day, God. Deliver on the day, God. Jesus, we need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We're crying out to you, Lord. We know that you're able to save our souls. We know that you're able, God, to heal our bodies, Jesus. We know that you're able, God, to turn our situations around. Jesus, no other help we know. No other help we know. No other help we know, God. You're able, Jesus, to deliver our children. You're able, Jesus, to save the unsaved husband. You're able, Jesus, to heal the cancer patient. Nothing too hard for you, Jesus. No other God we know. We know that you're able, Jesus. We know that you're able, Jesus. We say yes to your will, God. Yes to your way, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give your name the praise. And we'll bless you, Lord. Yes, we thank you, Lord. And we bless your holy name. Come on, open your mouth and give the Lord some praise.
This is the kind of radio you need. Yes, Jesus is a morning radio. Old radio for real people. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We thank God for another Tuesday morning. Thank him for life, health and strength, waking us up, closing our right minds. We're grateful unto him. And uh, we thankful that he brought us through up until this present time. So many have gone on just just since yesterday, just since Sunday. So many have gone on. But we thank God. We thank God that we are still here and we are leaning and depending upon him. Because without him, we can do nothing. Yeah, there's nothing we can do. So we just give God the glory. We give him the honor. And we give him the praise. Yeah, I can truly say this. Every time I turn around, God keep on blessing me. And so I'm thankful unto him. Brother Louis, it says that page is not found. I don't know why it says that, but it says the page is not found. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. I know we was right. I believe you. I believe you. But listen, today we're back to the book of Acts, chapter 24 today. And uh, I apologize for yesterday. Many times it's the uh, something in here. I don't know. Uh, uh, something in my area. I, I don't really know. But uh, we went back and uh, they were able to give me sound again. So I have to make sure that. I don't know why. I defrag, I um, get the task manager, because without it, it, it don't do right. And so I can't send it back. Uh, it, it, it'll leave me without. So I'm bearing through this. I'm bearing through this. But they'll take it back and uh, give me another one. But I got to bear through this. Because I, I know it's really um, nothing more than they sold me the wrong thing. Maybe it was the uh, want the display. They sold me the display after, you know, people done use it and just gave me a brand new keyboard. I don't know what it is. But anyway, we thank God that we can get back on and you can hear me and I can hear you. And the day go on. We're grateful unto him. So listen. Uh, Brother Louis, can you send that to my email? I probably could read it better uh, if you sent it to the uh, email. But it says, where strong and credible evidence has recently been revealed that COVID-19 and COVID-19 injections are biological and technological weapons. Yes, he God don't lie, and when he warns you not to do something, don't do it. And when you hear something, don't be the first to run to get it. Because we're living in a time where you can't even trust dirt on the ground. You can't even trust that there's real grass in the ground. I'm telling you. The only thing in this hour we can trust is the word of God and God. God and his word. That's all we can trust in this hour. Yeah, often I heard uh, everything shine is not gold. I, I, I've heard, 
I don't trust them no far that I can see them. Now it has gotten to the point of where you don't trust at all. So we have to pray and make our calling and election sure with Almighty God. Lord, is this something you would have me to take? Because I'm going to tell you what I saw afterwards, a while afterwards. I saw people doing all kind of crazy stuff, shooting off in crowds for no reason, then killing themselves. Who does this? And this was happening too often, too often. And I'm like, it wasn't the vaccine that's causing these people to act a fool. The way people drive on the road and there's many more cars. Where are you going? You can't drive through another car. But it told me something is wrong with the mind. Uh-huh. Say the big news is Florida is going to ban the vaccine. No, they just are acting a dunking. People getting mad with me because I would not take it. You're not going to take it. Like I'm deliberately breathing COVID-19. I don't have COVID-19, never have. I was in the house when all the foolishness was going on. Stuff was brought to my door. I was a Lysol Christian and a Washington. <laughs> okay. Yeah. When I had a terrible cold, I didn't even have the flu. I had a really bad cold and that was it. But God allowed that to show me something. He didn't give it to me, but he allowed it. Yeah, we got to be careful. Stay prayed up. Ask God, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. I'm telling you, what you are going to get to see that, that Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, if you obey it, you are going to get to see God is real. He would do what he said he would do. Yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, look, we had um, Pastor Mark Hinton to pray the prayer of faith this morning for us, and uh, Luca Barnes come in, and before either of them, we had some. Come on, let's celebrate. Come on and celebrate. We're celebrating the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's sing unto him. Let's raise our hand and praise unto him and worship. Hallelujah. He's worthy. And I thank God for, y'all may not believe it, but just a real diet change. Really, really, for real, stick with it, diet change. I um, did the three-day distance a few weeks ago. Dropped down 10 or 11 pounds right quick. And uh, they call it the military diet and the heart diet. And uh, I hadn't planned to do that again because it gives your body a shock. In three days, I promise, if you stick with it, you've lost between 10 and 15 pounds. Yeah. And and it's true. Yeah, it's true. So I got off of that because that shocks the body because it want to shock the heart. So I got off that. And uh, I went back to trying to eat crazy. You know, I went back to trying to eat my fried fish and my fried chicken, you know, and, uh, rice and mashed potatoes. And the doctor sent me for the blood work. 
And when the blood work come back, the, the uh, blood sugar was up. They're not saying I have diabetes, but I'm very well on my way. Very close. What they call pre-diabetes. Uh, the blood pressure was up. The cholesterol was good, but it could improve. Um, they recommend you 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 get this off, Barbara, because if not, the only thing it's going to do is cause you to gain more weight. You don't want to be 600 pounds. You don't want to be 400 pounds. You you don't want to get a thousand pounds. Can't do absolutely nothing for yourself. Every, somebody have to come and shower you. You know, give you a bath. Somebody have to come and feed you. And, and, and when you go to the doctor, it's, it's like an act of Congress to get to the doctor. Not only that, but you got to get something bigger, like a bus almost to drive. Then it may get to the point where you're so big you can't drive. You don't want to be like that. And then it come to me, kidney failure, fatty liver, da 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 Other people, heart attacks, all these things. God has blessed me for 66 years to be good. Yeah. I had a few aches and pains and bumps and scrapes here, but nothing really major. No surgery. I've never had a surgery. Only real surgery I ever had was tubal ligation after the last baby. Oh, goodness, that's been too long ago. <laughs> so no no real surgeries, you know. And when I tell uh, these people when I go to Ackerman for something, uh, 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 ultrasound or MRI, they look at me crazy. What? I said, no, I never had no surgeries, no none of this, no none of that. What? Yeah. So what I decided to do is to let plant-based become my life. Greens, squash, cabbage, anything green, kale, spinach, um, lettuce. I make a mean turkey wrap, no bread. The, the, the turkey, ground turkey, is in a lettuce leaf, and I can put what I want on it. On mine, I like pickles and mustard. I will put tomatoes and all that, but some stuff calls inflammation. I'm just sharing this morning. And believe it or not, Within, I want to say, let's say Thursday, no, let's say last Monday. Let's say last Monday. Until this Monday, I can see a few pounds have come off, but it's not a drastic weight, you know, like 10 pounds, 15 pounds. But I can see and feel the difference. And my stomach is flatter. I can see the difference in my arms. Yeah. So I now I started to exercise to tone up the two or three pounds that I lost. Yeah, because I think I was losing before then because I was eating more. Yeah. Okay. All right, but Louis, he said broccoli and baked chicken breast. See, I don't like that breast, but I'm gonna have to work with it. And uh, I. I use seasonings, but I use real garlic. I use the um, turmeric powder. 
uh, onion powder, but I also use the real onions, different color peppers, and uh, it gives the food flavor because I'm not supposed to have salt. Yesterday I had cauliflower, rice, okra, and tomato over there. They have some plant-based meats that you can try that you might like, but you have to try them for yourself to see what your taste bud tells you you like. Yeah, I like the dark meat, too. I like the leg, the thigh. I throw a wing in there, but the breast, they can keep that. It's just too much meat. But anyway, um, I wanted to share that in case you want to do something for yourself to feel healthier. Look at plant-based stuff. Look at the greens. I buy a, a drink called Soja, S-U-J-A, and it's got cucumber, celery, all a lot of greens in it, and so I drank that. It says drink eight ounces, well, I drank four because there's a little bit of sugar in there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I backed away from that plain sugar that you buy in the bag in the five-pound and all None of that. Now, I may have a little honey. And believe it or not, for a week, I am used to the plant-based diet. See, I thought it would be hard. Oh, no, I, I can't go without my fried stuff. And let me tell you, I cut any kind of oil out of my diet other than olive oil, the real olive oil. And a couple of spoons of that and some sautéed onion will fix up anything you cook. <laughs> what it does for me. And I'm used to big flavor. I did all of these things, so now I'm feeling like pasta. Because I, I had to cut the pasta for a week. I took the pasta, the rice, uh, potatoes, bread, sugar, what they call the white stuff, took it out my diet. I see a difference. I feel a difference. I was able to clean my garage. I hadn't cleaned that garage, I know, in months and months. I was able to clean my garage last Saturday. Good. My brother come over and he helped. He didn't help me clean the garage per se, but he hooked the water hose so I could wash down the lanai. I hadn't did that in a while. I wasn't feeling it. Yeah. So if you start with some foods that you like, but plant, plant based, greens, collards, mustard. I take that olive oil, put it in a pan, put them Valdelia onions in there. I, I slice them up good. And then dump the greens on top with a couple of spoons of water and just let it cook. And then when I need a little bit more water, I put a little more water, no salt, no smoked meat, none of that. And when they get done, I cut them up. I just love mustard greens. I eat that mustard greens, and the next day I am full of energy. I bought the steam Harvey Elevate, and it, it, it's got a really good flavor to it, but you still can taste the greens in it, you know, through the chocolate. And whatever sugar they got in it, because it's a little bit good and sweet, it's not, it can't be real sugar, a natural sugar. You know, I don't know what they use, but it ran my blood sugar up, so I can't take it. And I'm learning to stop trying this stuff people putting on the market. Cut it out. Go to a plant-based diet. Make It all starts in your mind. Yeah. 
it all starts in your mind. Because, see, I was telling myself, oh, no, plant-based food, that's nasty. It's not going to taste good. I was telling myself, well, who's going to eat some greens without some smoked meat in it? Even smoked turkey. I don't even use smoked turkey in it. I just get the natural flavor of the greens. You'd be surprised what you can do. I prefer a vegetable plate. I like to have collards. Cabbage, all these separated. Ooh, and that fresh corn on your cob. I love it. I'm from the South. This term, I can't put no butter and Parmesan cheese on it. Yeah. So I'm going to try just the natural taste of the corn and see what happens. Now, this is not for everybody because everybody, you know, but if you well overweight, and you're on your way to 300 pounds, you're on your way to 400, or you already weighing 400, 500 pounds, you're bigger than you should be, you want to try this. It'll surprise you. But again, it starts with a made-up mind. I drive right on by a Krispy Kreme donut like it's nothing. Yeah, I see people eating different things like uh, McDonald's fries and a shake. That'll hit just right with a Big Mac. Nope. Pass on by that. You want a Big Mac, bro? Eat that turkey wrap. That's your McDonald's. That's your burger. And when I tell you I love it too much, but I, 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 I haven't had any since last week because I don't want to burn out on it. Eat it, eat it, eat it, and then I don't like it no more. But I bought yellow squash, and I'm going to make a squash casserole. I usually mix cheese and make it creamy and all of that. I'm not doing that this go time. It's going to be fresh and nice. Then raw vegetables are good for you. I'm, I'm, I'm eating celery, a whole stalk of celery uh, right after breakfast. It lowers blood sugar. Yeah, celery. I'm having a sweet potato because I, I, I love that sweet potato. But no butter, no sugar, no vanilla. I put cinnamon, just cinnamon on it. It's sweet already, I promise. See, once we get off all the sugar we've been on and, and, and the um, sugar they put in stuff that they sell in stores like cakes and pies and dinner cakes and all of this, once we back away from that sugar, when you taste a sweet potato, it's very sweet to you. It was like that all along, but we so our tongue is so used to taste buds, so used to super sweet. Yeah, I wanted to share this this morning because somebody's hearing and will be blessed by this. Yeah, so I put cinnamon on the sweet potato. It lowers the blood sugar. Fatty liver. Chamomile tea at night. It helps you sleep good. Chamomile tea. They told me for a fatty liver, chamomile tea, liquid, uh, to sleep on my left side, no oranges and no lemons. Because those acids uh, 
help cause acid reflux. But and baking soda. You could take baking soda and put it in water. They told me to drink it after every meal, but I hadn't tried that yet. But back in the day that that was your Alka Seltzer. That was your Nexium, baking soda and water. They have something called slippery am, apple cider vinegar. Check this out, and I know this to be true. Chewing gum helps indigestion, acid reflux. Chewing gum, especially a mint-flavored gum, because mint helps the food to digest. It'll clean your esophagus. Is that what it's called, where the food go down? It'll, it'll clean all of that. But aloe vera juice, a half a cup of If you drink a half a cup, I think it's every day. That helps. Ginger, I know ginger helps. Ginger, uh, what did I say? Tomic, turmic, whatever it is. Y'all know I get it mixed up. Sometimes I can say it correctly and then like I forget the pronunciation. Um, garlic, I roast garlic. And when I have a meal, like the, like the okra and tomato over the cauliflower rice, I can eat garlic with that. If I decide to have a sausage patty and a boiled egg in the morning, I can eat garlic with that. Yeah. Chicken, you, you, you can eat what you want. You just have to prepare it different. No grease. Take that oil and that grease out of your diet, all but a little olive oil. I promise you in a week you're going to see a difference. And in a week you're going to, before the week is up, you in the next two days, you're going to feel energized. There's some things you haven't done you're going to want to do because you say, oh, I want to get that done. I just don't feel like it. But when you take all this stuff out your diet, sugar and rice and bread, I, I know bread. I don't, I don't eat food with wheat bread, none of the bread. I can make a healthy bread at home from scratch. I don't even make that. Now, Within when a month is up, I might try a little wheat bread or the homemade healthy bread. I might try a little bit of that. But bread was my weakness. Sugar was my weakness. Desserts, fried foods, everything that was bad for you, that's what I loved. I looked at myself, you don't like salmon. I hate the taste of salmon. I roasted some, the top tasted good, but as I chewed it, the salmon flavor came. I hate it. Now I know I hate it. And when I was a girl, I ate salmon patties. So guess what I did? Roasted off some salmon, smashed it up, chopped up onion, put an egg in it, no salt, no pepper, and a little olive oil in a pan, I made a patty, and I could eat that. That's a real salmon patty. But it don't taste, it, it's the real salmon, though. But to me, that patty uh, with a little stuff in it don't taste like that. You know, that, that baked salmon, it don't taste like that. I can't stand it. Then I made turkey pan sausage. I made it myself, just bought the ground turkeys already ground up. Put my seasonings that I like in it, pat it out, made it into a sausage. I put it on sheets of um, non-stickable Reynolds wrap. 
and I made layers, like two per layer, put them in a freezer bag and threw them in the freezer. So if I want sausage and egg in the morning, I can pull my turkey patty homemade from scratch out and have that with a boiled egg, some garlic. Yeah. And I can wash it down with green tea. Green tea is good, and it'll lower a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I'm not talking about the green tea with strawberry, kiwi. Nope, nope. Just plain, straight up green tea. It's, it's, it's much healthier for you. And uh, you're going to see a big difference. I have some walnuts, almonds, all of that. They're just a little handful of almonds, a little handful of walnuts. Because walnuts look like a brain. It'll help your brain. It'll help your memory. So I want to share all of these things with you this morning because somebody is desiring to make a change in their diet. And somebody said, well, no, it's not a diet. It's a, a change in food choices. Look. For me, it's my diet. It's what I eat. And what I did is I made some changes within my diet. I took out of the diet what I shouldn't have. Oranges, I took them out. But I'm incorporating lemon in this one thing. I know it said no lemon, no oranges, no grapefruit either, nothing acidic. But I'm cutting up a lemon. And I'm putting lemon, ginger, honey, and water, warm water, not hot water. And I'm stirring that around at night before bed, and you drink that. Fatty liver, it's going to clean it. Kidneys, it's going to clean all of that. But you got to be faithful at it every night and make it fresh. Don't, Don't make it and put it in the fridge. Every night, make it fresh. I'm telling you what's helping. Yeah. And I'm I'm exercising. Got to get some exercising. Yeah, I like to tone up what I lose. So if we can get those exercises in there, we'll be good. Wanted to share that this morning. I know you weren't looking for that. Yeah, but uh, wanted to share that with you this morning because somebody want to live and not die so that they can declare the works of the Lord. Somebody want to feel healthy, be healthy, and these are the things that will help us. I can bake a pound cake for somebody and never give it a second thought because butter is in it, sugar is in it. Uh-uh. I'm good. Every now and then, I want to uh, help, you know, reward myself. I may have some buffalo shrimp, and that's my reward. For me, so I am grateful unto Almighty God for the change in my diet, and it's a change that I say I believe I can stick with for the rest of my life. I believe I can do this. Yeah. Now the devil come to try to discourage you, girl. I'm eating pizza, girl. Well, I don't want no pizza unless I make it myself, and I'm staying away from bread. Yeah. If I go out, I just got to have a salad. If I go out, I just got to decide. Uh, if it's breakfast, I just got to decide, do you have turkey sausage? And an egg and be good. Yeah. So, look, we're moving on this morning. I'm going to one more request. And I, I had a request to play um, 
the gentleman's uh, testimony, I thought sex could feel the emptiness I felt until Jesus did this. I got a request to play that again. So I don't know if we'll get to that today, but I plan on playing it again tomorrow. And because um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And he helped me to see a lot of things, how we got to go to God about certain things that continues to happen. I want to play this one for you. This is called Right Now. And Dorinda Clark is the lead singer. And this is the Alaskan, Alaska Masquire. I didn't know Alaska had a masquire, though I would have been singing in it when I was there. But Alaska has a masquire. And so we're going to take a look at this, uh, listen to this one. It's called Right Now. I won't play it all the way through, but maybe two minutes or three minutes of it.
inspiring and encouraging you all day long. Jesus in the Morning Radio with Barbara. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Good morning, CR. Coming, I like that kind of camera. <laughs> right there. That sounds like me. That sounds like me, CR. Me too. I like that kind of camera. No, as my daughter used to say, I like that kind of noise. Yeah. The Alaskan Mass Choir. The name of this one was Right Now. I'm telling you, I never knew Alaska had a mass choir. Wish I did. I'd have been traveling Alaska and singing with the mass choir. Yeah, they would have let me in. They would have let me in. Yeah, I didn't want no lead. I didn't want to do no lead. I did that when I was a child. Hey, I just want to sing back up, you know, background. I want to be in the background. Right now, right now. Yeah, that's what I want. Let the women do her thing and anybody else. I just want to be in the background. Yeah, Brother Lewis, there's a yogurt. Um, I got to look for it. I, I forgot the name of it, but it, it don't have fruit in it. I don't eat fruit in yogurt. I get a healthy, plain yogurt with no fruit. And I can put what I want in it. Now, if I want to put fruit, I can. Because I know what I'm putting in it. Because when I buy it out the store, it comes with sugar in it. Strawberry, blueberry, peach, lemon, banana, all that wonderful banana pudding. It have whipped toppings on top of the yogurt. So, no, I, 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 don't, I don't do that anymore. I just get the plain yogurt if I want it and put my own fruit in it. That way I know. I don't eat cottage cheese. Ugh. Some people cottage cheese and peaches, not for bonds. And I don't eat canned peaches, canned fruit, nope, no more. Frozen or fresh. Yeah, I'm learning something. Organic is the best. I'm, I found organic bananas trying to eat what's right that will restore my body, bring my body back to where it should be. Because eating all that processed and foolishness, my body is not healthy like it could be because I put too much foolishness in it. You know, I used to love a fried eggplant. Oh, I'd give my arm for a fried piece of eggplant. And I started cutting them up in squares and battered them up and deep fried. Oh, my goodness. I love that fried eggplant. But I can take eggplant and make a burger. Did you know I can slice it thin? Or as thick as I like a burger and roast it off with a little bit of olive oil and, and a little bit of black pepper if I want to. And I can put it on whatever, you know, bun that I find that I can eat that's healthy for me. Put my lettuce and tomato and my cheese on it, mayo, whatever I want, ketchup, mustard, pickles, and make a burger out of eggplant. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning some things. I'm learning some things. And some things I'm, I may eat, but sparingly in, 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 moderate, in moderation, very moderation. You know, like that hamburger bun, I might find a, a wheat bread instead of the bun that's better and make my eggplant uh, hamburger. And it, 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 it's like eating what we think is impossible, but it tastes just as good as the foolishness or even better 
if you make it. And that way, you know what's in it? I can even grind, grind my own turkey to make ground turkey. If I choose to get a piece of beef, okay, Brother Lewis, if I choose to get a piece of beef, I can grind grind that and make my own ground beef so I know what's in it. There's a place headed into St. Augustine where you can go and buy beef, you know, grain-fed, a healthier beef where they take care of these cows and they're not feeding them chicken and all this old crazy stuff because I don't trust meat out of the grocery store anymore. You, you can't. You might be eating anything. And hot dogs, I turned them loose. I won't talk about them. Bologna, anything processed, basically, I turned it loose as much as possible. Yeah, so I could eat more healthy. I'm going to try that salad with that chicken on top. And I think he said a boy is, what did he say? Uh, yeah, he said uh, a little bit of chicken and crushed up boiled egg on top of a salad. That would be a green salad for me. Yeah. So I, I just had to change, you know, my eating and to live and not die. And I want to eat to live and not live to eat. Before I was living to eat with all that craziness, pound cake, coconut pie, all my, you name it, I had it. Banana pudding, jello with Lots of mixed canned fruits in it. That that wasn't good. Real sugary. So now I don't have to eat like that. I can eat much better. And I thank God for that. I thank him for And I thank him for the exercises that I'm doing. And after a while, I'm going to get wide open. I got an exercise bike and I get in a treadmill. Because I feel safer walking at home and riding at home than I do out in the streets. Yeah. Now, I get out and get me some fresh air and, and get me lots of sunshine. and um, I, I'm drinking some vegetable things out of a little bottle. Oh, it's wonderful. Elderberry. Oh, it's just wonderful. But And I got to get that bottle so I can give you all the name of these things if you want to try them. Yeah, but again this morning, it all starts with a made-up mind. Because like me, you'll start, but you won't go to the finish line. You'll start, but you won't go to the finish line. But if you make your mind up and tell yourself, I want to live. And I prayed the prayer phase. I said, Lord, I don't want food to kill me. I don't want to die because of food. Help me. And he came right in. Yeah, my mind was made up and I went on in him. Hallelujah. But look, we're closer to um, starting the book of Acts, and uh, I thank God. I thank God for it. Now, this one here is one of my favorites. Ooh, you have no idea. Whenever God shines his light on me by Van Morrison, and I just happen to find this particular one. He used to have a guy backing him up, but he had different people backing him up. This time, he's got a woman backing him up. So I want to go to this one this morning, and uh, I'm going to dedicate this one to every listener, every caller, those coming through the archives and the podcast. I'm going to de uh, dedicate this one to you. So it's a shout out. 
to everybody this morning from me. God bless you. Uh, we're looking at Acts 24 
and uh, we're going to begin at the first verse. Before we go there, I want to ask the intercessors to um, keep Brother Jermaine and his family in prayer. Keep his wife uh, and the new baby in prayer because I got a prayer request from him on yesterday. So I'm asking the intercessors to lift him, his wife, the new baby that haven't been born yet, about to be born tomorrow, I think they said, is her due date, and his children. So just lift that family up in prayer and uh, ask God to bless the mother to have an easy delivery. And uh, God is able and he'll do it because he hit me up yesterday and told me what to pray for. And I prayed. And then later on, he came back and he said, all is well, which I knew, which I knew it would be. Yeah. Because, see, one thing about it, we can say what we want. The scripture said, be fruitful and multiply. I say in 2023, no way I'll be having children. Let me tell you something. God didn't say what year. He said, be fruitful if you're married. Now, I ain't talking about shacking up, packing up, and playing up. But if you marry, he said, be fruitful and multiply. I look at Sarah and Abraham. They were past the time. That's like a man having a vasectomy and a woman having a tubulation, tooth burned, clipped, and tied. And they came together in prayer, asking God for a son or a daughter. And guess what he did? He gave it to him. The man had the vasectomy. She had tubulation. God is able to recreate, remake that body over. He made it the first time. You don't think he can make it a second time identical to the first time? He'll bring back everything that you had in your old age. Because a lot of stuff in your old age, clip, burnt, and tied, that's over with. That stuff can grow back together and you, and you can do what you want. Through prayer, through faith, through believing God, we're having us a baby. I remember I ministered to a couple, and she said, I'll talk to you later. I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to uh, uh, work on these, these children you told me I'm going to have. I was so tickled. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. But she didn't quite say it as nice as I said it. But anyway, I knew what she was talking about, you know. If God said it, I'm going to do what it takes to get it. And see, sometimes God is speaking our lives, but we're not doing what it takes to get what God said we could have. We playing games. He said fast and pray. We over here uh, dancing. We shouting. He said fast for three days. Pray and fast for three days. And I'm going to give you what you're asking for. Hallelujah, Jesus. So I thank God this morning, and uh, we're moving right along today with Acts 24, and uh, I got the King James open, and I got the basic English. And so in verse 1, it says, and after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. So after five days, the high priest Ananias came with certain of the rulers and an expert talker wanted to tell us, and they made a statement to Felix against Paul. Yeah, he wrote a letter, and 
and they just trying to come together to see who they can get to lie and all kind of stuff against them. But in this life, we're going to go through these kind of things. They got it so bad until they don't want you talking about the God who created them on the job, the God who created them in the schools. This country was built on God. That's how we got what we got through God. And you want to tell me I can't talk about it? You, you want the country to die. You let everything that's evil come in but the spirit of God, which is not evil, is good for us. It's like this country wants everything evil and bad, nothing good. When it started out, these people appeared to be closed in their right mind. I'm not saying they didn't have no troubles along the way. They didn't do some evils along the way. But the scripture just simply says for all of us, if my people which are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive the sins and heal the land. And as soon as we learned about the true God, we begin to seek him, things begin to change in our lives. But things messed up because we don't want God. We want what God have and what God can do for us. But to actually have him, we don't want him because we got to obey him. And what he says to do, it don't agree with us. We want to do what we want to do, but still receive the blessings of the Lord. The devil is a fool and a liar. And because you believe in what the devil say, he's making a fool and a liar out of you. And a liar won't tarry in God's eyesight. Now, that's what he said. I didn't say it. Hold it against me if you want to. But I wasn't there when God inspired man to write it. Yeah. So in verse 2, it says, and when he was called forth, the tulips began to accuse him, accuse Saul saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. So, and when when he had been sent, when he said for Tertullus, uh, start his statement, Tertullus said, because by you we are living in peace and through your wisdom wrongs are put right for your nation. Now, that's what he's telling old Ananias. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nothing withstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray of thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. <laughs> Look, but so that I may, I may make may not make you tired, I make a request to you of your clip of your mercy to give hearing to a short statement. Yeah, I, I I just want to tell you about Paul in a few words. But we have found this man a pestilence, a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. 
and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Listen, for this man, is, in our opinion, is a cause of trouble, a maker of attacks on the government among Jews through all the empire and a chief mover in the society of the Nazarenes. Oh, he tried to go in with that educational thing, you know. At what they call it, political correctness. He tried to go in from an education standpoint, said all this crazy stuff about Paul. Because he don't realize who made him and who made Paul and who sent Paul. Called him a ringleader. <laughs> said a mover in society of the Nazarenes. <laughs> Verse 6 says, who also has gone about to profane the temple whom we took? And would have judged according to our law. So who in addition was attempting to make the temple unclean whom we took. But the chief captain, the sires, came upon him. And with great violence took him away out of our hands. Remember they took him in. Because they, the people was trying to kill him. And they had to hide and sneak him to be at this hearing. Because they were going to kill him. Yeah. Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accused him. And from whom you will be able by questioning him yourself to get knowledge of all the things which we say against him. And the Jews also assented saying that these things were so. Yeah, the Jews were in agreement with the, with the statement saying that these things we we saying are true. Then Paul, after that, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak. Answer for as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Yeah. Then when the ruler had given him a sign to make his answer, Paul said, because I have knowledge that you have been a judge over the nation for a number of years, I'm glad to make my answer. I'm glad to talk for myself and to give an answer, cheerfully give an answer, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet for 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with any man neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogue, nor in the city. They did, I, I, I got here and been here for 12 days. I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they have not seen me in argument with any man in the temple or working up the feelings of the people in the synagogue or in the town. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worshiped I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. But this I will say openly to you, that I do give worship to the God of our fathers after that way, which to them is not the true religion. But I have belief 
and all the things which are in the law and in the books of the prophets, and have hope towards God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now, they believe this themselves, and that's all I was doing in the temple. It's the same thing. But now they're coming against me. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense towards God and towards man. And in this I do my best all times, all the times I have no reason for shame before God or man. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. And having been made clean, I was in the temple, but not with a great number of people, and not with noise. But there was a certain Jew, there were certain Jews from Asia, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had aught against me. Or else let these same hearsay if they have found an evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice that I cry standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix, Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, when Messiah, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the ultimate of the matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. So they, they, they put him in a place, yet he was free. They locked him up, yet he was free. And they said none of his friends or co-minister workers could come to him and minister unto him. Yeah. But look at this. <laughs> and after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Yeah. He, he preached that thing. And you know what? Paul was a great writer. Do you see his writings? I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Look at his writings. So he shared this with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And it said that Felix trembled. Yeah. That word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And if you listen close enough, you're going to believe. And if you obey it, you're going to feel God. I'm telling you, you're going to get to know God, the true and living God, Jehovah, that have all power, 
there's no higher power. You're going to get experience God firsthanded on your own. You're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt for yourself that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Your faith will increase. You will learn to trust God with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, you're going to acknowledge him and he's going to direct your path. You'll learn to be not wise in your own eyes. You'll fear God and depart from evil. You're going to get to see as time progresses. That's one of the greatest passages of scriptures God could get, gave us to keep us, to keep our mind, to trust him and watch what he does. He have all power. He's got all power. There's no higher power. Is there anything too hard for God? Ask yourself. Nothing. He made the heavens and the earth. He's the one that raised the sun in the morning. He's the one that bring the moon out at night. Then again, a certain time of morning, uh, I mean, a certain time of night, he put the sun down, and in a little while, the moon comes up. This same God is on our side in spite of us. This same God, there's nothing impossible for him. This same God can work anything out you need him to work out. But all you need is faith and patience with him and trust him because of this. Whatever is going on, it can come into the due date. Nothing is going to happen after the due date. Why? He's got it all in control. With him, it's possible. Now, with man, it's not. Man can't turn the moon around. Man can't change the season. It's impossible. They, I know they try, and they want to be in control. But God made the heavens and the earth. And without him, we can do nothing. He may allow some things. So that some people can think, I did this. I, I changed the weather. I, I, I'm going to take care of global warming. Without God, we're not going to do nothing. He'll shut it down. Anytime he get ready, he will shut this thing down. Yeah. So he made Felix tremble. The word of God made him tremble. And he answered, go that way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Yeah, get him out of here before I convert. Right here before everybody. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul. He thought Paul should have paid him some cash and he might lose it. See, if he had offered some money to uh, Festus, Felix, offered some money to Felix, he'd have turned him loose. Wherefore, he sent for him the opener and communed with him. He sent for him more often and talked to him more. Isn't that something? But after two years, Pontius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Isn't that something? It's a bad thing to have ungodly leadership. 
It's a terrible thing to have ungodly leadership. The scripture said, resist the devil and he'll flee. But many times man is resisting God, resisting the spirit of God. And the Holy Ghost will not force it. You're resisting the wrong thing. Mm. So we're looking at Acts chapter 25 and verse 1. Now when Festus was coming to the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him. Festus came after three days. And they went in and told him all about was Paul. They made statements against him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. That was them that was waiting for the opportunity to let Paul show up. If we see him, we're going to kill him. Some went on a fast, remember? They wasn't going to eat until Paul got killed. Yeah. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither, which means shortly there. He was going to go there. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down into Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul. And they could not prove, they couldn't prove the lies they were telling them. While he answered for himself, neither against the laws of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar. Have I offended anything at all? But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Isn't this something? This wasn't even worthy of a hearing of keeping this man in jail. Yeah. Turn him loose and let him go and get on with some more business that's really important. Festus, Felix, Ananias, all of y'all. Yeah. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong. As thou very well knowest, y'all know I ain't did nothing worth all this foolishness and to keep me bound. Eleven says, for if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. I don't mind dying. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Yeah. 
I just have to take it to a higher court, a higher hearing. Then Festus, when he had conferred with counsel, with the counsel, answered, Has thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. Okay. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Now, they're making this appear to be something worthy of discussing. You know, I said it, the devil is a fool, and he will make a fool out of you, but you have to allow him to. This is nothing worthy of getting another person in leadership. Unless you done set the man free because it was nonsense, and you just tell him what happened when you was in Caesarea. Other than that, it, it, it's not worthy to take him all the way to Caesar. You had the right to let him go. You could have stopped him and said, uh, 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 Paul, I'm turning you loose today because we can't find anything worthy of death or being in prison. If we turn in your loose, do you want to stay bound and not go and go up to Caesar? Or you want to be freed and go on about your business? But they thought they was doing something and, and making uh, something that sounded intellectual and satisfying and foolishness. That's what it was. I'm here to tell you. Absolutely loony tuneness. Absolutely craziness is what it was. And many times this is done. Many times church people do this kind of stuff. Like they're talking about something or it's something worthy. Foolishness. So to whom I answer, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die. Before that, he which is accused have the accusers have a license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid before him. It, it, it's not the matter of the Romans to take a man up to die before he stand trial, in other words, and have them that's accusing him face to face with him. And he have the right to speak on his own concerning the crime that's against him, charged against him. Therefore, when they would come hither, which means here, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth. They running backwards and forwards quick as they can with the foolishness. When they came there, it was on the morrow. They came without any delay, came quick and sat on the judgment seat and commanded that Paul be brought forth against whom 
When the accusers stood up, they brought non-accusations of such things as supposed. They couldn't bring nothing against them because it was a lie. They didn't have no accusation. They couldn't accuse him. But had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. I know they know they crucified Jesus. I know they know they hung him on the cross. I know they know they beat him all night long and teased him and abused him, made him carry his own cross up Calvary's hill. They pulled one out to help him take his cross, got him up there, stretched him out, put the nails in his hands and his feet, hung him up, pierced him in the side, out come blood and water, put a crown of thorns, thorns on his head, make fun of him. You can save the world, but you can't save yourself. There were two thieves there with him. I, I don't talk about it often, but two thieves. One was with the crowd. You can't save yourself. The other one said, remember me today when you go to paradise. And Jesus told him he would. The only thing they said, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And they say he hung his head and gave up the ghost. They took him down, put him in a borrowed tomb. But it was a new tomb. Nobody had never slept in there before. Three days later, they come looking for him. He was gone. He was risen. Within the three days, he went down into hell, conquered all, and rose with all power. <laughs> Hallelujah. And they're going back and forward like they some great people, like they got something going on. Not knowing the very God that they murdered, that they hung, that they killed, that they crucified, is looking at them today was looking at them right then and there, how they were treating Apostle Paul. And one day they have to answer for it. Some of it came back on their children, their grandchildren. Yeah, their great-grand. It's a curse in the family. Because you over here playing politics and acting like it's something deep, it's nothing. Turn the man loose and let that man go on. And let him teach what he want to teach. If you anchor deep in your religion, he can't change your mind. And those that minds that he changed, let him change them. But see, you don't know, you, you don't know the true God. You don't know what you got going on. So you don't want to hear it from nobody. And you're afraid if he turn all these people against your way, you won't have nobody to teach in the synagogue yourself. You can't wear the tall tassel in the big robe. You can't be called leadership no more. You don't want to lose that position. But had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether we would go to, the, to Jerusalem 
and there be judged of these matters. And when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, thou shalt hear him. See, they just wanted to, itchy ears want to hear. Not that they was in favor of Apostle Paul and not that they was in favor of even God because them themselves thought they were God. They were the leaders. They said who die, who live, and they just thought they had all the power. Verse 23 says that on the morrow when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp, oh, they came with the quickness, and was entered into the place of healing with the chief captains and principal men of the city at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. See, it made him feel good and, and, and made him feel uh, important and a big stature because they could present to the men of stature, uh, the king and, and, and the high priest and the this and the that. Foolishness. They could have got Paul out of there secretly, set him free and got him out of there. All of that would have died down. But God is yet in it and he's got a plan. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself has appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. Look was not worthy, nothing worthy of death. Nothing worthy of being locked up. Turn him loose and let him go. Of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Until he get in here with the foolishness and tell me when he examined and the king had, okay, nonsense. After the king examined him, then I might have something to write. But it seemed to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not wither to signify the crimes laid against him. What seemed to me against reason to send a prisoner without making clear what there is against him. Yeah, I, I can see all the foolishness in this, and I can see how this made them important, but at the same time, Felix trembled. And the rest of them, if they had paid close attention, it would have proved that Paul was on to something. And they knew it. They knew it. 
but to keep them high positions and to keep what they felt like they was in full power and had all the authority, which they didn't, but to keep feeling that way, they refused to surrender to God. They, they, they thought they would have been surrendering to Paul, but they would They would have been surrendering to the God that sent Paul. That not far off that horse on the way to Damascus and blinded him. Yeah. In verse 1, it says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I thank myself, happy King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day, before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert on customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Well, King Agrippa, uh, you know, you, you, you are expert in customs and questions uh, among the Jews, you know. And, and I, I'm just asking you to hear me patiently. Don't rush me out and don't cut me off. Just hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. If they would testify that after the most straightly sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers unto which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I barely thought with myself that I ought to do, I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus, Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul. Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, 
For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continued until this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should raise from the dead, rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he does speak for himself, this was said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning does make thee mad. But Paul, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuaded me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God. That not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both also and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up and the governor and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or a bond. Didn't I tell you? He did nothing to die or be locked up for. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty, in other words, been set free, if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Yeah, they just had a bunch of nonsense going on and they just wanted to hear Paul for themselves and they got to see it was nothing worthy of death or bond. Nothing worthy of death or for him to be locked up for. This y'all nonsense. Y'all got this going on over here against this man and acting like it's some business. It's some real business. (laughs) Felix, Festus, Bernie's, all of them don't have to stand for what they did against Paul. Yeah. And it's already all right today in Jesus' name. So look, we're going to one quick one of the morning. I'm not going to play the entire song. 
and then we coming back. www.jesusinthemorningradio.com Hallelujah, hallelujah. So we're moving right along. And uh, we are on <clears throat> in the book of Acts, chapter 27. And we're starting at verse 1. And it says this, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius a centurion of Augustus' band, and entering into a ship of a doodlem, a, dra- a dramatilum, we launched 
meaning to say by the coast of Asia, which Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. I know I pronounced his name wrong, Aristarchus. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce would come over against us, Venetus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete, under against Simone, Salmon, and hardly passing it came unto a place which is called the Fair Heavens. No, the Fair Havens. Now whereunto was the city of Lucie. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the past was now already past, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the heaven was not commodious to winter, in the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete and lie towards the southwest and northwest. And when the south wind blew, Softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, losing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there, there arose against it a temperate wind called Eurocidon. Eurocidon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Claudia, Claudia, we had much work to come by the boat. Which when they had taken up, they used helps ungirding the ship. And fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, straight sail, and so were driven. And we were exceedingly tossed with the tempest. The next day, they lightened the ship, and the third day, we cast out with our own hands and tackling of the ship. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. 
But after long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from crates and to have gained disharm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you. But of the ship, but of the ship, but there stood by me this night the angel of God, whom I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou hast Thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God has given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sir, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country and sounded and founded 20 phantoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and founded 15 persons. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out out of the stern and wished for the day. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except they abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boats and let her fall off. And while the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have carried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. Wherefore, I pray you to take some meat, for this is for your health, that there shall not and have fall from the head of any of you. And when he had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then were they all of good cheer, and they also took some meat. And we were in all in and we were in all the ship, two hundred three score and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough. They lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with the shore, into the which they were minded, if it were possible to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves to the sea and loosed the rubber band and host up the mainsail to the wind and made towards shore and fallen into place where two seas were where two seas met. They ran the ship aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. 
And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves fast into the sea and get to land. And the rest, and to, and the rest, uh, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and some came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. And they, they, they made it. They got into the sea and they get to land. And then all of this, they got a chance to get a little rest on the boards and on, on the broken pieces of the ship. Yeah, they made it safe. As Apostle Paul had said that they would. None of y'all are going to die. The angel of the Lord came and stood by me and told me this last night. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we're moving right along. And uh, the studio is open. If there's anyone have something they would like to say, please feel free to press that number one and come in. If not, I promise to play that testimony tomorrow. But if you don't have anything you would like to say, you don't have a favorite part in any of these scriptures, a favorite saying, then we'll go on to the testimony. But if you have something you would like to say, please feel free to press that number one and come in. Good morning to you, um, Sister Samoa. Good morning to, to you, my God, baby, Laura. Good morning to you, Sister Rita. Good morning, Pastor David. Good morning, Sion. I seen another 407 number. Look like it was 335 or something. And uh, good morning to you, Brother Anthony. Good morning to you, Sister Irene. Good morning, Sister Jerry. And good morning, Sister Dorothy Goodness. All right, Brother Lou, I got you. Look that. Enjoy yourself. And uh, ship me a mango. <laughs> ship me two mangoes, Doc. <laughs> Oh, let me tell you, the mangoes down in that area, they are just wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I can have a fresh mango. Yeah, make me want to drive down and get me some. Yeah, I remember days when they was hanging over the tree, hanging over the fence in people's yard. Just mangoes just all overripe, ripe to perfection. And the people paid them no attention. They, they, I guess they had more than they needed in their freezers or wherever, you know, on their uh, kitchen counters. How smelling wonderful like mango. But I just wanted to get over there and get some. And they said, you can't just get them people mangoes. You got to get permission. Knock on the door, nobody home. I'm not coming back this evening. I'll be in a whole nother park. Yeah, I'll be over in Carroll City. I'll be over in this part. Might be back in Fort Lauderdale or at the beach. Yeah. Oh, wow. She had a tree, too. They had a tree, too, and she said they don't have it uh, no more on the tree like they used to. Oh, what they did. Yeah, she said we don't have it no more on our tree. We had a bumper crop. Okay, okay. Why? Now, I don't know what the bumper crop, crop is, but even that sounds good to me. <laughs> Whatever that was. Yeah, and so we just thank God today for his word. 
and of no one habit and fame they would like to stay. All right. All right. Good morning to those who come through the podcast and the archives. God bless you today. I thank God for each of you. So we're going back over this testimony. I said I would play it tomorrow, but we have some time to do it today. And why put off tomorrow for what can be done today? Hallelujah. So I'm going to this one right now. I thought sex could feel the emptiness I felt until Jesus did this is the name of this testimony. By that time, you know, after pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day, I was addicted to porn, I was addicted to masturbation, but at the time I didn't think it was it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry, and so I wanted more of it. I was on one of my hikes through the desert, and I was praying, and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. And when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You certainly are not saying that to me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you going to let me love you or not? By God's grace, I said, Lord, I've got to come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is a, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. He said, oh, yeah, I know. I'll show you. And the Lord said, you and I are going to go down into this cave. Don't worry, it's dark, it's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there, but I'm gonna be with you. My parents were uh, an interesting mix. My dad basically grew up in a Christian home. He had a good solid uh, foundation. My mom, not so much. Uh, when they had me, they were young. My dad was 18, my mom was 16. They were legally married, uh, but you know they were teenagers and uh, my mom had gone through lots and lots of trauma growing up in her family. I think she really was very kind of standoffish regarding God. My my dad had always, uh, I think, had a love for the Lord, but he had a lot of issues that he struggled with, addiction issues. And so my dad would take my little brother and I to church. My mom never joined us. Uh, and he would read Bible stories to us uh, uh, at night. So I had something of a foundation there. And, you know, I remember going to church and uh, Sunday school and things like that. But then my parents uh, split up when I was about seven. And part of what caused that was uh, my, my mother had me and then my brother Ken and then my sister Tammy. But after three months, Tammy died suddenly in her crib uh, of what they used to call uh, crib death. It's now called sudden infant death syndrome. And I remember vividly waking up one morning and hearing my mother just shrieking. And I saw a fireman walking past my open bedroom door down the hall carrying my baby sister. And my mother trailing behind him just weeping. And I didn't know what was going on, but of course I knew something something was, was happening. And she'd actually found her dad in her crib that day. And the reason that was significant is because my parents' marriage had always been kind of rocky, but that trauma just kind of finished them off. And it wasn't long before my mother took my little brother and I to Texas to live with uh, her parents. And my parents divorced after that. That was a, a, a tough time in the experience of our family. At that point, then, uh, my, my mom, who didn't really have any real skills, she, she got work as a cocktail waitress, uh, and I was introduced to kind of the honky-tonk lifestyle in Texas, and she worked so very, very hard just to make ends meet, but it was really hard. And when she actually met a man who was willing to kind of, you know, 
take her under his wing and, and pay her bills, and she, she jumped at the chance. I think not only because, uh, you know, we struggled financially, but my mom was just a very, very broken person, like I said, and, and she was desperate for, for acceptance and connection with somebody, but she didn't know how to maintain those connections. And she literally went from one cowboy to the next. Uh, and they all seemed to, to have this tendency to, to be abusive. I watched my mother get beaten on a regular basis by different men. My little brother and I learned how to hide in cupboards and things like that to, to steer clear. So it was, it was a challenge. But as, as hard as all of that was, probably the greatest uh, source of pain was just my relationship with my mom herself. My mom would become uh, very emotional, very uh, almost explosive at the smallest thing. You know, she was the kind of uh, mother who, if you spilled your milk, she would just almost like have this meltdown, like, you know, what, what are you doing? And, and so I grew up feeling lots and lots of anxiety. I remember a story, it just might seem kind of silly to some people, but I remember before my parents split up, I was in the bathroom one day, and I've always had a very vivid imagination which has been both a, a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but I was hanging from the towel rack in the bathroom. So I'm about, you know, maybe even five or six years old. And I'm playing out some adventure. You know, I'm, I'm the hero hanging from the cliff edge. And, and you know, the bad guy's going to step on my fingers or whatever. And all of a sudden, the towel rack came off of the wall in my hands. <laughs> and I landed on the floor and made a big ruckus. And I felt this terror come into my chest. Just, just this, this, this abject dread because I knew my mom was going to come around the corner and she was going to yell at me or, you know, tell me that I was stupid or I was clumsy. And uh, I, I can still, strange as it sounds, even at this age, I can still remember just her, her, her bulging eyes and the veins on the side of her neck and, and her uh, asking me, what, what are you doing? And I can joke about it now, but for years I thought my name was frickin' Brat. Mm. Uh, it was actually Russell, but, but my mom just... And I understand now, of course, for years I didn't understand that she came from just the most incredible brokenness. She was, she was molested by her grandfather. She had a, a, just tons of pain, and her, her family was just a huge mess. She didn't have the wherewithal to be, you know, uh, the kind of mother that she wanted to be, that, that my brother and I needed. She was just so easily triggered. She would always talk about having a nervous breakdown. So I lived in constant fear that my mother was just going to, to lose it and that I would probably be to blame. I have another memory of a couple years after that. I was, I don't know why I always had my adventures in the bathroom, but <laughs> I was in the bathroom. I had this little Mickey Mouse nightlight and I'd filled up the, this, this is just exactly the kind of thing a little boy would do, isn't it? I'd fill up the, the bathroom sink and I was playing submarine with my Mickey Mouse nightlight. And Mickey was, you know, making a dive and then surfacing and making a dive and surfacing. And then I thought it would be fun to plug Mickey in. Now, Mickey was full of water now. And when I plugged it in, I heard this pop and blue sparks. I'm like, oh, uh, I could have been electrocuted, but I wasn't afraid of being electrocuted. I was terrified that when my mother came around the corner, I was going to be verbally abused and cut to ribbons. And that was really almost like the, the norm in my life. Basically what we would call a day verbal emotional abuse, being shamed, being constantly told I was a bad boy. I was making her life impossible. And so even as a little boy, I just kind of assumed that that I must really be a horrible person if I can make this grown woman, you know, completely lose control. I mean, how bad of a son must I be? And looking back now, I realized my mother, 
She wasn't trying to be abusive or cruel. She was just parenting me out of her own brokenness. You know, there's a saying, you, you can't give what you don't have. And she had never had any real care or comfort or mentoring growing up. And so she was winging it. But that really began to shape how I saw myself. Uh, and my mother was especially nervous about anything having to do with sex. I remember around that same time that Mickey and I, you know, had our adventure. Uh, I walked into the bathroom one day, not realizing that my mom was taking a bath. And when I spotted her from like the the, the, the waist up, she 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 again she screamed this this terrible scream. I think it was probably her own trauma. And I at first I just froze. I thought I'd really done something bad. But then I of course I I hightailed it out of there. But I felt like I'd seen something horrible, you know, unbelievable, and that somehow I was to blame for that. Of course, it was just a little boy mistakenly walking in on his mom taking a bath. And had my mom been a little more healthy, she might have said, you know, she might have covered up and said, uh, sweetie, mom's taking a bath. You step outside, wait till I'm done. But she couldn't do that because her, her own level of shame and, and self-hate was so great that she saw everything as a horrible emergency, a crisis. And so that was ingrained in me and in my little brother. When my parents split up and we moved to Texas, probably the, the, the next memory I had that was, that was formative for me was I was walking home from school. I was probably in the first or second grade. So I would have, I would have been maybe about uh, seven or eight. And I was walking through this field on the way home and I saw this, this thing in a, next to a bush. It was kind of trash strewn around and I saw it. And I, I went over and looked at it and it was a magazine. And it was some kind of a pornographic magazine. And I looked at this and I saw these pictures of, of naked women and they all seemed so happy and joyous and, and welcoming. And you know, they're showing me every crevice of their body. And I felt like two things happened at the same time. I felt like this, this adrenaline rush that hit me like, I'm not supposed to be seeing this. But at the same time, I almost felt like this comfort and this warmth. And looking back now, I realized that what occurred in that moment was in my own life, I felt like I didn't get any real fathering because he wasn't there and certainly no mothering, uh, no nurturing, no, no comfort, no, no affection. So here, here, was, here were grown women being kind and welcoming to me and, and revealing themselves to me. And so obviously it had all the sexual components, but there was an emotional component that, that took place. It felt like nurture to my starving little soul. And I think in some ways that experience, it marked me. For the first time I felt like, well, now I get to be with a woman, see a woman, have a woman share herself, be honest, be exposed, literally and figuratively. And, and this was where I'm gonna find my comfort. And that basically sent me on a journey for probably the next six, eight years of looking for pornography wherever I could find it. And this of course was before the internet, so you couldn't go online, uh, but as I got a little older, 10, 12, 13, I'd go to uh, like used bookstores or, or, or places that sold magazines or books. And if there were like any sex manuals or something, I'd, uh, I'd open it up and I'd be, I'd be standing there with, with people walking all around me, just hypnotized by what I was looking at. I mean, a couple of times the store owner would say, uh, yeah, young man, if, if you're going to look at that, you need to go somewhere else to look at that because, you know, I don't want you doing that in front of the whole world. I just, I, I, I constantly looked for something sexual. If there was like somebody in my elementary school class who seemed to like me, I mean, I was, I was experimenting sexually as much as I could with any other girl who would have me. My whole life became about finding 
my sense of worth and belonging and, and significance through uh, the, the sexual love of a female. Hmm. And I didn't realize all the mother issues that were part of this or, or just, you know, the fact that some legitimate nurturing needs that God intended me and every little boy to, to have fulfilled were, were not only being starved, but they were even being uh, attacked in the other direction. I was being, I was being shamed. I was, I was being insulted. I was being told I was a horrible little person, and I believed it. So I was desperate for any little crumbs I could find, and somehow I connected in my mind, not surprisingly, that acceptance, those crumbs of, of love and, and affection and care with sex. And so that set me on a journey, and I, I just continued to kind of devolve from there. At 16, I was just, you know, a typical kid in high school, and my, I remember when I was with my best friend, Dan, our, our goal was to finally get a job and earn enough money to hire a prostitute. And if we could be with a, a grown woman like that, then it would just meet all of the deep needs of our soul. That's how deceived I was and how, how, how broken and bound I was that I, that I saw that. Let me back up a little bit. The good thing was, at 12, I encountered Christ for the first time. When we lived in Texas, uh, me and two of my good friends, Marty and Kyle were their names, we hung out together. We were invited to this church where they were showing a movie. Uh, some of the people watching this might remember this movie. It was called A Thief in the Night. It was one of those really bad Christian movies from the 70s that the production values were awful. <laughs> it was all about, you know, the Antichrist coming and the rapture and don't be left behind. I think they showed the mark of the beast. It looked like, literally looked like a UPC code, but it scared the heck out of me. And after the movie, the pastor got up and basically said, you know, if, if you don't want to be left behind after the rapture, if you, if you know there's sin in your life and you want Jesus to forgive you, well, come forward right now and let me pray with you. And almost as if on cue, my, my, my two friends and I, we stood up simultaneously and we shuffled to the, fo- to the front and we got down on our knees and the, the pastor laid his hands on us and just prayed that, you know, we'd be forgiven, that we would accept Christ into our hearts. They were bawling like little babies. Uh, I wasn't crying because I'd learned not to feel. I'd learned in my family growing up that if I felt anything except cooperation or happiness about what my mother wanted to do, I would be punished. I couldn't be angry, only she could be angry. Uh, I couldn't be depressed. That made her see that her life and, and, and the way she treated me was, was hurting me and wounding me, and that, that just made her feel really, really bad, but she took that out on me. And so my, basically I learned how to, how to not feel from an early, early age. I, I froze that. I, I was very stoic. Uh, and some have accused me of still being that way. Uh, I have this George Washington face. Uh, I can have emo- deep emotions, but it doesn't always, my, my face doesn't always get the memo. So <laughs> even though I didn't feel any you know, overt emotion that night when we were praying at this little Assemblies of God church in West Texas, something hit me. I felt this cleansing. I felt like for the first time in my little life, I didn't want to be this, this, this little kind of foul-mouthed punk that I'd already become by 12. I wanted to be good. I wanted to be a kind person. I wanted to be somebody who uh, had, a, had a, a positive impact in the world. I'd never felt that in my life, but I'm convinced that that was the night I was born again. But then I went home back to my alcoholic family, to, to, to my mother and the man she was with who regularly abused her. And just nobody followed up. Nobody, you know, called me or invited me to, to, to come to Sunday school or, you know, any kind of a youth group. So I definitely had an encounter with Jesus, but nobody helped me understand what to do after that. So 
my spirit was open, but I had no guidance. So I actually started going more and more into like occultic things. I was fascinated with witchcraft and, and anything satanic. And, and I would read books, even as a little guy, adult books about how to cast spells. And I mean, I was totally into that. I, I was fascinated by kind of the, the world of darkness. That's basically what was going on for the next few years. And I eventually ended up kind of moving more into a, a type of new age belief system, uh, trying to connect with my spirit guide. Had no idea I was, I was getting on the fringes of the demonic. Had no idea. Again, I just, I was believing all kinds of stuff I was reading, kind of metaphysical and like Buddhist Hindu kind of, of thought. It was that summer in 1978 that I had an opportunity to travel with somebody. Uh, it was really just strange. A lot, of, a lot of things in my life are very weird and unorthodox, but there was a, a woman, I lived uh, in a little town called Yucca Valley, California, which is not too far from Palm Springs. And I saw an ad in the paper one day, it said, uh, woman traveling to East Coast, looking for a traveling companion, will pay all expenses. I thought, well, that sounds like an adventure. And how old were you at this time? I was 16. My dad, uh, he was an avid pot smoker and he, you know, delved in drugs and drinking, uh, had for many, many years. But he still had that spiritual hunger and we would, we would talk about things. Cause by this time, I'd actually left my mom's place when I was about 16 or so and moved in with my dad because just the, the trauma and the, the negativity that surrounded me was so awful, I just had to escape. And so my dad, even though he was a drug addict and an ex-con and he had lots and lots of problems, he was a breath of fresh air to me considering where I'd been before. And we talked about God and uh, when, this, uh, when we saw this ad in the paper, this woman, she was actually uh, stationed at the Marine Corps base and she was going back to Boston where she'd come from. And she'd actually put money in a couple of banks across the, the country and she just wanted to travel back, take her time. She wanted somebody to go with her. So I, I think I was the only person who answered her ad. I, we, we met somewhere, my parents and I, and I, I lied and told her I was 18. She was a little concerned about, you know, uh, but she said, well, I haven't had anybody else respond. So we set out and we started driving from the, the high desert of California and probably about three, four months later, we ended up, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. But it was during that time that, that God really got a hold of me. I was still I was still reading all of this, you know, weird kind of metaphysical literature and I was into just I mean, you name it. I if I was into UFOs, I was into to to spirit beings and interdimensional experience. I mean, I was just I was just a sponge. I wanted all of it. But when we got to Columbus, Ohio, uh we had to kind of just take a little break for a while. Uh, she decided to do a little temp work, and, and I was able to get a job, too, just for uh, like a couple of weeks so we could earn a little bit of money. And we stayed at this boarding house, and the, the woman who ran the boarding house was a an on-fire Christian. Now, she was, a, she was an interesting piece of work. <laughs> she, she smoked like a chimney, and she had kind of a salty attitude, but she knew Jesus. God had used her to do incredible miracles, and I sat down one night and started talking with her, and I started telling her my, theolo- my theories about, you know, spiritual things. And instead of telling me, well, that, that all sounds like a bunch of silly stuff you know, that you've made up in your head. She said, no, what you're telling me, Russell, those, those are real experiences. You know, when you heard the voice, when you've seen these things and you've experienced these other things, that's real. That's, that's absolutely real. But she said, do you realize that you're on the wrong side of the spiritual world? I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, God is not the only one who can do supernatural things and reveal things to people and, 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 do miracles and signs and wonders the devil can too and and the demonic world is real and they counterfeit a lot of this stuff and 
it actually made sense to me. It's like, well, okay, she didn't tell me I was silly or crazy. She acknowledged that I had real experiences, but maybe I was playing with fire. Maybe I was on the wrong team. And it, it concerned me. It frightened me. And so I started peppering her with questions about Christianity. And she had some decent answers. And the next day I, I got up and I decided that I was going to seek this God. I had been kind of doing I had actually been reading a Bible up to that time because no matter what literature or, or guru or, you know, uh, teacher I read, they always quoted from the Bible, even talked about Jesus. So I knew he figured in there somewhere. But at that point, uh, I fasted for the first time in my life, uh, and I spent the day without food, and I found a private place to pray, and I just said, Lord, if what this woman is telling me is true, I'm kind of on the wrong side of the fence here. But I want to know the truth. I do. I want to know what's, what's real, what's true. And if, if I'm believing things that are false or, or dangerous, then please rescue me from those things. And the only verse I really knew that made sense was John 14:6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I didn't know anything else. I didn't really understand the cross or any of that stuff. But I knew that and I realized I've been running circles around Jesus. I've been listening to people who, could, who said they could show me the way or they could teach me the way. But Jesus is saying, I am the way. And on the strength of that, I just said, Lord, you know, if this is true, I want to follow you. I want to belong to you. I want to be your person. And that's when my, my, my life with Jesus really began to take off. We traveled the rest of the way across the country. I came back home. I eventually found a, a little church and started to get plugged in. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had actually met somebody who cared for me. That might sound weird to somebody who's listening to my story that, well, so you're saying some invisible person made you feel loved? That's absolutely what I'm saying. Because I realized that even though God is invisible, that he's real. I started reading the Bible with fresh new eyes. I started being around other Christians who had a relationship with the Lord, and that started answering questions. I started connecting with people. I started praying and seeking God, and I felt like I was in a real relationship with someone who cared for me and who loved me and who got me, and that I wasn't just an annoyance or an irritant to. So I literally clung to Jesus for dear life. I did it not because I was so spiritual. I did it because I was so desperately lonely and despairing and hopeless. No human relationships had ever really touched the need, but I felt like Jesus was starting to touch that. What little I knew of him. How did he begin to deal with, with everything that was going on around you? Um, you obviously had hurt from a, from a younger age. The witchcraft, right? You were involved at some point. Right, right. You had these desires to want to even get involved with prostitutes and all of these different things. Um, coming in contact with Jesus and clinging to him, what was his response? What did he begin to do in your life as you begin to have this relationship with him? Well, the first thing Jesus did was he showed me that, you know, all of these little spiritual adventures and odysseys that I was pursuing were definitely uh, in the world of darkness, that there, there are spiritual beings who are holy and who are good, and then there are spiritual beings who are unholy and unclean and, and de deceptive. And I realized I'd been I've been hanging around, you know, with the wrong crowd. <clears throat> so I gave up all that. I, I mean, I repented. I wanted nothing to do with anything. I mean, even, even horoscopes. It's like, I don't want anything to do with any of it. And the next thing Jesus started dealing with was my lust problem. By that time, you know, after basically pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day. Uh, so from, you know, like 7, 8, 10 years old, all the way up to 16, I'd already gotten in a lot of trouble. I was addicted to porn. I was addicted to masturbation. 
I was a voyeur. I would look through people's windows to see what I could see. I believe this proverb says, evil comes to him who seeks for it. Well, I found a lot of evil. I found things I was looking for and saw things that I shouldn't have seen. But at the time, I didn't think it was, it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry. And so I wanted more of it. The first thing Jesus said is, you've got to stop lusting after every woman you see and thinking sexual thoughts 24-7. And so as best I could, I just said, Lord, I want to, I want to obey you. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to start what I didn't know at the time, like it says in Corinthians, taking every thought captive. So I just, I, I learned how to just catch myself and say, no, I don't need to go down that road. And it was just a constant battle. I was so, my mind was so pickled by the lust and the, the pornography and the constant search for some kind of sexual uh, salvation that it really took a while for me to, to get out of that mindset. And the masturbation didn't go away instantly. That was still uh, a habit. Gradually, the Lord helped me to, to let go of that. So at that point, you know, my mind was cleared up more and I was able to really focus on Jesus. And I, I just, I saturated myself in scripture and in prayer. In the little church I was a part of, I even had kind of a reputation of being something of a fanatic. <laughs> uh, because when I had free time, when I wasn't working, you know, I'd, I'd pack a, a snack and some water and, and my Bible and I'd literally take a hike into the desert and just find some place where I could be alone with the Lord on top of a little foothill. or And those were wonderful times. And the Lord began to speak to me even then. In fact, I remember the first time I heard his voice. And let me just say, when I say his voice, I don't mean an audible voice. I think sometimes people are confused, like, oh, you, you hear it? Is his voice husky? Is it deep? <laughs> I've heard it said that God's voice is sub-vocal. It, it's, it's not necessarily a vocalization, though God can speak audibly. I've talked to people who've told me they've had that experience. I believe them. But it was more uh, what the Bible calls that, that still small voice, that, that gentle whisper. But the first time I remember kind of confronting that, I was on one of my hikes through the desert, and I was praying, and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son, and why I'm well pleased. And the, when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You, certainly you're not saying that to me. That, that's, that can't be. I must really be, man, I'm, my ego must be running away from me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you going to let me love you or not? I thought, wow, are you saying that to me? God, are you telling me that I'm your beloved son? And that began years of, of wrestling with, did I believe what he said about me or did I believe the message I was raised all my life uh, under that, that I was a bad, worthless, unlovable person. But slowly, because I was immersing myself in Christ, my ability to hear got better. My ability to discern got better. And I was just experiencing a kind of reparenting. Jesus became the father I hadn't had. He actually became the mother I never had. He was so gentle and comforting and patient and nurturing. And so this was, this was just like, you know, my everyday diet. I didn't realize at the time that, you know, as a t teenage Christian, that my experience was a little bit unusual because sometimes when I talked to some of the other people at my church, they'd kind of look at me funny. And it wasn't because I was in a conservative church. I was, I was in a, a church that believed in the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God, but, but I was, I think, a little too much even for them because uh, the, the need and the desperation of me was so great 
that it was to that degree that I sought the Lord and, and wanted to get to know Him and, and learn about Him and, and let Him own more and more of my life. Probably about 10 years without even watching television. And that's not because my church taught that or that was, you know, some... In fact, everybody was free to do that. But I just figured, I don't want to spend all my time watching TV like I did before I was a Christian. I want to get to know Jesus. Wow. And that was actually a very healthy thing for me. So I got 10 years to detox from media and movies and, you know, all, all that stuff. And I, I realized Jesus was taking me kind of down a unique path. I started getting involved with some ministry stuff. I, I, I led our youth group at our church and actually started having opportunities to preach in some places. And hmm. my pastor asked me to teach a Bible study with some people. And by now I'm like 20 years old because the word was just in me so deeply. When I was about 20, 21, I met the woman who became my wife. And that, of course, was, was uh, a turning point for me because I'd always believed, basically from the time I was 16, I said, I need a wife. That's, my, that's what I need. Right? That's, if I have a woman, then I'll be fine. So I wasn't seeking porn, but I was still kind of believing that the love of a woman would, would take away all the, the pain and loss inside of my heart. Mm. I've come to understand now that that really wasn't the case. But uh, I believed that. And so when I got married at 21, and my wife was 21, I mean, we, we clung to each other, and that was a good thing. I mean, I was having sex for the first time. In, in spite of all the weird stuff that I'd been involved in prior, I, I hadn't actually had sex or anything really close to it with a girl, uh, not because I wasn't looking for the opportunities. But I know now that God was protecting me from that. People that I've worked with now in counseling who've done that whole thing, they, it, it leaves permanent scars. And Jesus kept me from that, which I'm really grateful for now. So literally, the first woman I had intercourse with was my wife on our wedding night. Wow. And I still remember that with a lot of fondness. Uh, just, it was like, it was shocking and wonderful and strange and weird and beautiful all at the same time. A lot of people can't say that. And I don't say that as a point of pride. I say it almost as a, as a point of amazement that somehow God was able to preserve me through all of my deviance and, and all of my searching uh, to to be able to to meet my wife and to be a real virgin the night that I met her, uh, the night that we, uh, we consummated our marriage, I should say. Mm. Those were good years. I continued growing in the Lord, but after a while, it's like even the love of my wife was not enough, and I'd feel this, this emptiness rise up inside of me. And I was convinced at the time that it was because that she wasn't taking care of my needs, or she wasn't as responsive as I needed her to be, or she was maybe a little bit reserved sexually. And, so I would tell her, you know, I need more from you, and she, she'd try to measure up. But what I didn't realize was that maternal deficit that I carried inside was still there, and it was fueling a lot of, of what I was trying to get from her. I was trying to get the mothering from my, from my new wife that I never got from my mom. I was trying to get the nurture and the comfort. I started getting that from Jesus, but being married opened me up to a, to a whole new level, uh, and that was a good thing. You know, the, those, those ancient wounds from inside really came to the surface. There was a major turning point after we'd been married about seven years. Well, I didn't live in the high desert anymore. We had moved to where we live now here in Fresno. This was 1987. The Lord had given me a clear vision that I was supposed to come here and be involved in ministry here in Fresno. I didn't know what that looked like. He told me it would be pastoral. He told me he had a work for me to do here. But that's about all I knew. On the strength of that, we, we picked up and we moved 300 miles to uh, a, a town that I wasn't unfamiliar with. It actually lived in Fresno until my sophomore year in high school. And then I went to live with my dad, so I was kind of coming back home, if you will. 
But I wasn't real thrilled about it because I've basically kind of grown in my relationship with Christ and in kind of re being rebuilt as a person in, in the desert. I loved the desert. Some people hate it, but for me it was a refuge. It was a real place of, of, of comfort and healing. So coming to the big city, so to speak, I only did it because I felt the Lord made it real clear that I was supposed to. So I did, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and I was involved in pastoring a little church, and then I was an associate pastor somewhere for a while. But by that time, my wife and I had been married about seven years. I had a little two-year-old son, and I was still having this, this, this hunger, this ache that just, it would go away for a while, but it would always rise back to the surface. And finally, I realized that we, my wife and I needed counseling because this wasn't being addressed. And so I didn't even believe in counseling. I mean, I was so, uh, how can I phrase it? Not only was I on fire for the Lord, but I was also kind of like a, a fundamentalist in some ways. I, I believed, you know, it's clear right and wrong, and you don't go to a counselor because, you know, they're going to give you Freudian nonsense, and that's worldly, and you just go to the Bible. But I was so desperate, and I was like, well, I'll even try that. Hmm. So we met a Christian counselor, and uh, she, was, she was just a, a beautiful woman. She was very discerning. I think she had me pegged right from the start. But what happened in counseling, or it actually was therapy is what it was, was she knew how to ask the questions that nobody had ever asked that I hadn't even asked myself. And when she said, well, tell me about, you know, your, your childhood and your upbringing. And, and I'm telling her all the stuff I'm, I'm sharing right now. She's just like, Russell, you know that isn't normal, right? You know that to be yelled at and to be screamed at and for your mother to curse you with profanities all the time, that's not normal. Well, it was normal to me. Growing up in a, in, a, in a trailer park in West Texas, that was my life. And being around people who drank Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and, and wore cowboy boots and listened to country and western music, that was, that was normal, but it was all very uh, abusive and scary and chaotic and traumatic. And this gifted Christian counselor was able to help me see that what I experienced was not just a normal childhood with a few, you know, hard breaks. It was actually abuse. Mm. Uh, a pattern of abuse and it caused me to start to see myself in a certain way and then I, I started to go down a whole new road uh, uh, a journey into the reality of what I'd, I'd lived through in the first 16 20 years of my life and God began to show me that I'd experienced genuine abuse it had marked me it had caused me to believe things about myself that weren't true and it had catapulted me into trying to find comfort and love through sex uh, and even as a Christian and I was in ministry by this time uh, I was still, I wasn't looking to porn, the masturbation was behind me, I wasn't flirting with people, I was, I was completely faithful to my wife, but I was looking to her to meet all of the profound emptiness inside of me. And it was, it was in counseling that this started to really come to light. One day Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, you always say that it's, it's me that you trust in, it's me that you rely on, it's me that you cling to. But have you noticed that when you're really lonely or afraid or, or stressed or hurting, you run to carry, not me. I just thought, whoa, that's true. And I realized in that moment that I was an idol worshiper. Just because I was lawfully married, just because we were both Christians, didn't mean that the dynamic between the two of us was healthy. I was looking to my wife to meet needs that I carried over from a very loveless family. And those, those, uh, those unmet needs were legitimate, even God-given. But... You know, the little boy in me can't be mothered by looking to his wife to play that role. I didn't realize that I'd been doing that, but I realized at that point and that I'd actually made my wife a god of sorts. 
it was at that point that Jesus gave me what has become my life verse, which was John 7:37, where Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I realized I'd be going everywhere but. Not that I hadn't been coming to Christ, but not to the level I needed to. That there was a level of desperation and loneliness and, and even despair that I'd, I'd kind of buried inside of me and tried to even cover up with ministry in some ways. And Jesus said, you, you're going to have to get to know me at a whole new level. And he, he actually gave me a picture one day of, of standing like in this like wheat field like you'd, you'd find in Kansas or something. I was a little bit confused. It's like, well, but Lord, I thought I, I had been intimate with you. You, you used me. I, I'd seen fruit in my life. Uh, you know, you called me to come here and be involved in ministry. I don't get it. Things seem to kind of be falling apart, not, not moving into a better direction. And it's like the Lord showed me this wheat field, like I said, and he and I are standing at the corner where, you know, where the fences meet. And there's just, there's all this, all this fruit, all this wheat just blowing in the wind. And, and it's like the Lord said, this fruit that you've borne is real. It, it, it's not pretend. It's not fake. It's, it's actual fruit. I've grown you up and I've helped you. But what you didn't know was there was this whole hidden area of pain and trauma underneath. And it was like at the corner of the field was this huge gaping black hole. Like uh, I visited Carlsbad Caverns once when I was a little guy. And that's this huge cave system. And that's what it reminded me of. And the Lord said, you and I are going to go down into this cave. Don't worry. It's dark. It's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there, but I'm going to be with you, and we're going to explore that. And I'm going to show you the subterranean world that you haven't been even able to understand until now. Wow. And so that's when I started to look at the effects that trauma had had on me and the ways that I reacted even as a little boy by shutting off my feelings and by, by running to porn and by running to a world of fantasy and books and make-believe and pretend and, because my, my reality was just too painful to deal with. And I was about 26 at that point, and I began to, to realize that I needed Jesus to be the true source of love that my core being was, was aching for. I kind of look back on that time as the, the beginning of my transformation. I'd been a believer for you know, 10 years. And I'd learned a lot. I'd grown a lot. I'd, the Lord had done some great things in my life. I'd led people to Christ. But there was this whole area of pain and woundedness that not only was I kind of in denial about and maybe suppressing, but I really wasn't able to look at it and deal with it. The Lord had to strengthen me to a certain level. I think that's why some Christians are, are shocked when they come to Christ, they grow, they learn, and then they reach this crisis or this, this trauma or this place of pain or stress in their lives and it doesn't seem like the Lord is there for them and so they jump ship. Hmm. Well, that happened to me, but by God's grace, I said, Lord, I can't, I can't jump ship. I can't go back to the addiction or back to my old way of life. I've got to come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is a, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. I'll show you. This is real relationship, Russell. Nobody knows how to do real relationship. People know how to do sexual relationships. They know how to do some level of friendship. They know how to be social. But most people don't know how to truly be intimate. I'm, I'm going to take you by the hand and show you that. Hmm. Russell, two questions here. First one, how did he do that, right, practically? How did he begin to take you through those dark places? And obviously we know that you had the counselor and, um, well, the therapy with your wife, and that was helping. But what were some other things that God began to do to be able to take you through that? And two, how does this revelation of everything that you have been through and how it was impacting you deeply. 
and God showing you that, how did that affect your marriage? That didn't make all the problems go away because I still kind of held my wife responsible to be my emotional all in all. But slowly I began to realize that that, number one, it wasn't right. It wasn't going to work. That she was a decent wife, but she couldn't be divine. She couldn't meet the needs that only Jesus could meet. The, the thirst that I had was deeper than any woman or any series of women could ever touch. And that's where John 7:37 was so crucial for me. Jesus basically saying, your thirst is abysmal. Your thirst is practically infinite. And you don't take an infinite thirst to a finite person, Russell. You've got to take an infinite need to an infinite source, and that's me. And so I did a lot of reading. Uh, I've, you know, uh, there have been some, since the, the 90s, there have been kind of a, a renaissance of, of Christian thought about counseling and psychology, and, and, and that demonstrated that a lot of what psychology taught was actually consistent with Scripture, you know, in the hands of, of a mature and skilled Christian. And I was reading some of those things. It was making sense to me, and the Lord was guiding me. That was huge. Just spending time, again, with him, as I had always done, but now going deeper. And one thing that I had to do was my, my counselor said, Russell, we really need to kind of go over your history in depth. I want you to journal everything you can remember from the from, you know, time you were born all the way up through. And uh, I didn't really want to write it all out, but uh, this will date me when I say this. But I got my cassette recorder <laughs> and I put a tape in and I pressed record and I just started talking about what I recall from my early childhood all the way up through. And while I was just sharing, you know, these, these old stories that I thought, you know, I'd forgotten long ago, I was stunned by how the emotion would rise up inside of me. I thought, wow, that, that happened 20 years ago. Why do I still feel so much emotion about that? And the Lord was helping me see things. Remember one day I was, I was actually talking about my pornography addiction and, and my sexual pursuit. And I had always believed that my mother was responsible for that. She was the one who kind of was the reason that I was uh, so desperate and, and, and seeking those things out from a young age. But Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, the abandonment, the loneliness, the, the devastation that you felt in regards to your mother, that was caused by her. But your sexual addiction was caused by you. In your loneliness and, and impoverishment, you went to porn. You chose to go there, and your addiction grew out of that. Your addiction is not your mom's fault. That's yours. You created this. And this won't be a newsflash to some people, but to me it was like, wow. The, the two that I always thought were, were one and the same, the Lord separated them and said, no, the devastation, the abandonment, the, the worthlessness that you felt inside, much of that came from your interaction with your mother. But the sexually compulsive behavior... That was your way of trying to medicate this. And what that did, I mean, I, I felt guilt. I felt some shame, uh, legitimately so, some responsibility. But that also showed me that just as I grew this thing and, and allowed it to, to become a monster, I could start to shrink it. I could starve it to death. I could do something different. I, I could stop looking to women, or in particular my wife, to be my all in all. I could look more to Jesus. So those are some of the ways that I started to learn. Around that time, started volunteering with this organization, New Creation Ministries, uh, as uh, just someone who would come alongside people who were going through the ministry, and we'd pray with them, and we'd have even times of inner healing prayer. And the, the director at that time invited me to come and help out uh, at their Thursday night prayer time. I started doing that. I was I was experiencing a lot of restoration in my own life, and then when I was around people who 
were porn addicts or who'd been sexually abused or who struggled with homosexuality or lesbianism or all kinds of just horrific experiences. When I would talk with them and hear their stories and pray for them, I was amazed how much I understood, how, how much kinship I felt with them. You know, I had people say, Russell, you, you seem to understand my homosexuality. Were, are you sure you weren't gay? I said, no, no I, was, I was never gay, but I know what lonely feels like. I know what hopeless feels like. And that's the thing I, I saw that regardless of, of what these people struggle with, the, the details of it, it came from that same place of devastation and uh, a felt sense of abandonment. We have a saying here in our ministry, same root, different fruit. It was really the same root pain and brokenness and trauma that, that drove all of us in our various directions that came out looking different. We might go down different tracks, but we were struggling with uh, the same loneliness that, I mean, at a pathological level. And so I felt like I was with my people. I felt like uh, I understood sexually broken people. And uh, eventually I had a chance to come on full-time staff. And I've been uh, on full-time with this organization now for about 30 years. and. I, I have a heart for broken, trapped, uh, hopeless people because I've been there. And here's the thing. I want to be really upfront. Though, though the Lord has, has helped heal me and grow me up and, and give me a, a healthy, robust understanding of sexuality, sometimes the old abandonment rises up inside of me. There have even been times uh, over the years as a, as a Christian, as a leader, where it rose to the level of making me want to take my own life. It's really hard to explain. Somebody who hasn't tasted that may not be able to follow this, but people who have been broken and abandoned and, and kicked to the curb or, or hated, they know what it's like to feel so hopeless, like the only seeming relief from this pain, this brick in your chest, is to end your life. I remember once uh, my wife and I had an argument over sex, and uh, I felt really hurt and devastated by it. But what it was was actually I was reliving all the abandonment that I experienced with my mom. And I left our apartment and I took a walk down the street not too far from here. And I just said, God, this pain is horrible. So I, I thought Carrie was my last and greatest line of defense, but she's collapsed. I have nothing. I have no one now. All I have is you. Yet I don't feel like you're making me feel better. You're not, you're not waving your magic wand over me. I don't feel relief. In fact, I feel like I'm, I'm tumbling into the abyss. And I was walking down this, this street and I said, Lord, if one of these cars should go off the road and hit me and take me out, I would consider it a gift. And I wasn't being melodramatic. I was dead serious. It's like death is preferable to this, this, this horrible heartache that's gripped my, my whole body. I can't. And I'm, as I said, I learned how to not be emotional, how to just freeze my feelings. But I just had hot tears coming down my face. And I was just saying, God, I, I can't. It's similar to what the prophet said in the Old Testament after Elijah had faced the prophets of Baal and then uh, Jezebel had threatened his life and he ran and he sat under a tree and said, God, it is enough. Take my life. That was suicidal ideation. And that's what I was feeling. Thankfully, God didn't answer that prayer. And I've had to revisit that place, that place of, of abject emptiness many, many times. And I used to try to run away from it or try to steer clear of it or go around it. And the Lord would let me do that for, you know, two, three, five years. But I ended up coming back and I had to meet him in that place. When, when I felt like no one had loved me, no one was going to love me, when I tumbled to the bottom of that well, I found Jesus at the bottom of that well. And what that slowly started to do was show me that 
my emptiness, my loneliness, my sense of extinction was not the deepest thing about me or the most real thing about me. Jesus Christ was. But the only way I could learn that, I think the only way anyone learns that is to go into that darkness. But most of us don't want to do that. And I can see why. I, I drugged my feet for years. I didn't want to, I didn't want to re-experience that. I didn't want to go back there and let Jesus unpack that for me and show me how he was actually present there. But I had to. And the, the good thing about that was not only did, did his love and his healing and his affirmation in me start to rebuild me as a person, but it started to take the edge off of this unquenchable yearning that I had for sexual fulfillment, even in marriage. That's actually what has been breaking the back of sex addiction in my life. Not just having accountability or not doing the bad stuff, but it's been Jesus' perfect love that's cast out my fear. But that's taken literally decades. How's your relationship with your wife today? Well, my, uh, my first wife actually went to be with the Lord after 30 years of marriage. She, she died from uh, ovarian cancer. And as you can imagine, that was a challenge. My kids were adults at that time. Hmm. So I mourned her loss and then about a year later, I met my current wife, Paula. We've been married now about eight years. And as you can imagine, the, the stuff that I dealt with in childhood, adolescence, even early adulthood, uh, it hasn't all been cleared up nicely with a, a little bow at the end of it. Jesus has healed so many areas of, of, of heartache and pain in me, but I'm not a finished product. I'm not totally healed. If I could compare myself like to this big pit, this big deep pit, I, I think I can say with confidence that 75% of that pit has been filled, but not 100%. And even biblically speaking, Paul said in Romans 8 that we all groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons. I think he's referring to this thing that no matter how advanced we are in, in, in Christ, we still know that, that we're not in the presence of perfect love yet. We're not in heaven yet. All of our tears have not been wiped from our face yet. Right? And so I'm aware of that, and yet... When I feel some of the old pain creep back in, I've learned to run to Jesus right there on the spot. Say, Lord, this second woman you've given me is as good of a person as she is. She, she, can't, she can't plumb the depths of this, of this abyss inside of me. You've got to touch me right now. And I learned to come to Jesus even when I had just over like, lustful thoughts. You know, saw some, some woman with, uh, without a bra or something, and I just learned to just be gut-level honest with Jesus. Say, Lord, pardon me wants to just jump down that woman's cleavage. But that's not the answer. Lord, even if I had this incredible sexual rendezvous with this stranger, number one, I'd be destroyed as a person. But secondly, that, that wouldn't meet the need because the need's not just for sex. The need's not for excitement. The need's not for novelty. If I went home and my wife and I jumped in bed, that would be great. But Lord, the need would still persist. It, it's not a need that can be met at a strictly human level. The other thing that really helped me was I learned to really start opening up to other brothers. For years, I thought that my need was a need for opposite-sex love. To my surprise, I found that what my need was for was actually love regardless. And to have other men that I started walking with, who I started to really share my life with and they with me, there was a bonding and a healing that would happen. I, I was experiencing brotherly love like I'd never known. My, my, my actual brother and I, we had a connection but it was, it was marred by all of the, the weirdness and the pain and the chaos in our lives. And we were both, you know, fighting our own demons respectively. And unlike me, I, I, I didn't want to be an, an alcoholic or, or follow the path of my family. But my brother did. And he ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver at 45. 
He, he went down the very same road. He had the very same level of pain that I did. But he, he for various reasons, didn't take it to Jesus. He, he took it to drinking and to sex. He had many relationships. I was able to escape some of that, but I wasn't able to escape the, the loss, the, the shock to my, my system that the abuse had created. But now I've come to see it as something of a springboard that gives me an opportunity to be intimate with Jesus on the spot, right there in the moment, wherever I am. And it keeps me dependent. Uh, I find that healing is not something Jesus has imparted to me. Healing is something I experience and live and walk in to the degree that I am currently consciously in touch with Jesus himself. So that's required that I learn how to pray like Paul said without ceasing. That's the secret for me. It's not, there are people that have a kind of zap theology, if you will. Uh, you know, somebody prays for them and they're delivered and they're totally healed. For me, healing is, is a living, dynamic experience that happens as I continue walking with the Lord. And the level of pain that I once knew is largely gone. The, the suicidal ideation, the, the depression, the hopelessness. Every now and again, it makes an appearance and I have to deal with it. But I know who to go to now. I know whose I am. I know, I can literally say that in all of my life, in all of my relationships, Jesus Christ has become my dearest friend, my closest friend. He knows me. He, he sees things about me that other people don't know. He, he knows things about me I don't even know yet. And yet he's always been so kind and so gentle and so patient and so, so parental. And yet he's invited me into his confidence. He's, he's, there's, a, there's a verse in, I think it's Psalms, where it says that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. In another translation, it says the Lord confides in those who obey him. I've learned to obey, not because, again, like I said, I'm such a, a godly person, but because I've been such a desperate person. And when I, when I grabbed hold of that pearl of great price, I was willing to sell everything I had so that I could have it and have real wealth on the inside. And that's still what I want to do. That's what I want to live for. And what I have the joy of, of helping other broken people step into and experience. That's one of the reasons I wrote Breaking Free, because uh, as... God started opening up more and more ministry through uh, New Creation Ministries, I would hear people say, well, well Russell, the things you're sharing with me, the, the things you're telling me about, these are great, but is there a book I could read that would you know, kind of help me understand that better? And I'd say, well, you could read this book, and then you could read that book, and half of this other one over here, and kind of put it, and it just, it's like, I, I found myself thinking, man, I wish, I wish somebody would just kind of take all of this and, and combine it. And to my shock, I felt like the Lord said, well, why not you? I thought, well, that sounds crazy. I mean, the extent of my education is a high school diploma. I didn't have training in English or, or, or writing, or I didn't have a liberal arts education or background, but I just started writing stuff down as the Lord was showing it to me, and that became, that became the, the book that's now in its 21st printing. And I tell my story very openly and honestly, and it's, it's helped a lot of people. Well, Rosa, I, I thank you personally because you're, we've used uh, your book, even in our church, to help uh, some of... Um, my friends and some of the people that go to my church. So Fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Russell, who is Jesus to you? Well, I can give you the standard answers. He's definitely my savior. Uh, he is a father to me. He's the one who has disciplined me of, of my rebellious, self-willed ways. But over and above all of that, he really is my dearest friend. He is the one that I can run to. I have no fear that he's going to reject me. I've really learned a theology of the cross that 
when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that it really was. All of my sin, past, present, and future was paid for. And so that frees me to, to never have to be fearful or, or concerned that he's going to judge me or lower the boom on me or, or learn something new about me that disgusts him and makes him want to throw me away. I feel absolutely known and seen and loved and heard by him. All I have to do is just is, is call on his name and just re- remember that he lives with me, that he lives in me. I've learned over many years how to walk with him through good times and bad. He's done many, many miracles. I, I could share easily for hours about all the things he's done in my life since I've come to know him. And for me, the miraculous is almost like, a, for lack of a better way of describing it, kind of a daily experience for me. We used to have a sign in our hallway here at the ministry that said, we don't believe in miracles, we depend on them. <laughs> and that's been my life. I've got to have Jesus Christ reassuring me of his love for me constantly. I am what you might even call an approval whore. <laughs> I've always, since the time I was this high, been looking for someone to say that I was special or, or wonderful or interesting or that somebody loved me. It was all very narcissistic. But the Lord has helped me understand that there is such a thing as healthy narcissistic needs. People who have children understand this when, when their children are five or six and they say, look, daddy, I drew a picture and it's a bunch of squiggly lines. And, you know, the father doesn't say, you call that art? <laughs> you know? He'd be a cruel man. He'd, but he says, oh, that's, what is this? Well, that's, that's, the, that's Darth Vader. And over there is Luke's. Oh, yeah, well, that's great. So, I mean, what, what's a parent doing at that moment? They're meeting their, health, their child's healthy narcissistic needs. But when that's never been addressed, and that hasn't been addressed in the lives of many, many people, who's there for you then? Strange as it might sound, Jesus has said all of those things to me. He's told me things that I wish my parents would have told me. He's, he's been loving. There's no one as affirming and as even, if I can say it this way, even dangerous in the things he will say to you about his love for you and his concern for you. Uh, I used to say, God, I'm going to get a big head if you keep talking to me this way. And he's reassured me that I'll have plenty of crosses in my life to help balance that out. I don't have to worry about that, but... But he's literally loved me back to wholeness. And there have been times when I felt like, wow, Lord, do you do this for other people too? Of course he does. But uh, Jesus for me is, he's the air I breathe. He's he's the blood in my veins. He's the the reason that I enjoy getting up every day. He's, He's the one I love to talk about. He's the one I love to talk to. I have a private secret relationship with him that is totally apart from ministry or praying for, you know, anointing to teach or preach somewhere where I can just be this needy, lonely, hungry little boy who falls at his feet. And he's always so loving and so comforting and so assuring. And I, 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 I can't say that enough. I, my words are, are so meager in, in describing the, the goodness of God's heart, the, the lavish, wasteful love that he has for us. Russell, for, for people who may find themselves in a position thinking to themselves that, well, therapy, counseling, it's not an option for me. I have Jesus in my life. He's going to do it. You know, we don't need that. And and you were in that position at some point as well. Yeah, that's how I felt. So for those people who are in that place, what is a word of encouragement that you can give for those who are having that struggle? Well, contrary to what some people believe, the whole idea of counseling, it's not anti-Christian. It's it's not you know, a worldly approach to, to dealing with your issues. Uh, it's thoroughly biblical. And scripture says, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. 
constantly in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the wise man receives reproach or rebuke or exhortation or correction. James 5.16 says that if we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, we will experience healing. I thought I'd just confess my sins to God. Well, I do for forgiveness. But when I confess my sins to another brother or sister that's trustworthy, the fact that they can hear that and still be encouraging and loving toward me, that heals something in the human soul that only another human being can touch. God knew that. I mean, he even said to Adam in the garden, it's not good for you to be alone. What are you talking about? I'm not alone, Lord. I've got you. Well, I didn't create you just for me. I created you for others like you. You need them. And so whether you know you talk with your pastor or you've got a really good friend or a mentor or you actually see a, a Christian therapist, we need people who can go inside. In Proverbs 20, it says, The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. We don't know what those purposes are, those, those deep waters inside of us. Many times we need somebody else to say, well, could it be that you were dealing with this? Or could it be that you've been thinking this other thing? Oh, well, I hadn't thought of that. And Christians are so threatened by seeking out counsel. But I'll be honest with you, I think it's mostly because we are stubbornly self-sufficient and independent. We can come up with super spiritual reasons why we don't need to see a counselor. But I, I know that God has worked in my life and in the lives of many people through a, a brother or sister who has the ability to hear and maybe some experience in helping people unpack some things and interpret them more accurately. I don't, I don't see that I would have made it or that my, my first marriage would have survived without that. Russell, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? I know that there will be people hearing my story who, who've also tasted the same desperation and hopelessness that I have. You might even be there right now. But I, I'm just going to tell you, you have never lived an unloved moment in your life. You have always been inestimably valued by your Creator. God is not mad at you. Whatever wrath God had against sin, He poured it out on the cross. He took it upon Himself. He doesn't want to judge or condemn you. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, we're told. You might feel shame. You might feel horrible about yourself. You might feel like you're worthless and unlovable. But you've believed lies. You've probably heard things in your own family. You're in a culture that's very judgmental and hateful and spiteful. And you probably have a voice inside your own head that says some of this stuff to you. But that's not Jesus. So know that Jesus loves you. And he wants to reveal that to you. Even if you know know the Lord for decades, open your heart to that. And let him love you to wholeness. Russell, for those who are watching your testimony right now on the other side of the screen and uh, are relating to what you're saying, are connecting in any way, could you just pray for them, um, for anybody who's just connecting with your testimony right now? Absolutely. Lord, I want to pray for, for the man, the woman, or the young person who is watching this right now, who may feel hopeless, who may feel desperate, who may feel like nobody gets it, nobody knows the, the depth of darkness that I'm in right now or that I've lived in my whole life. Lord, you do. One of the reasons you went to the cross was not only to die for our sins, but to step into the deepest, most hopeless agony of the human race and to taste it yourself. It felt to you like your father, whom you'd known from all eternity, had abandoned you and had left you for the first time. An experience that you had never known. And you tasted that. Scripture says you tasted death for every man. That doesn't just mean the end of our, our physical existence. It means this abandonment and annihilation that some of us feel. 
you went to the bottom of that. You drank that cup to the dregs. And it was horrible, absolutely horrible for you. You do know. Where were you, Lord, when we were being abused? Where were you when we were being molested? Where were you when we were being hurt and shamed and rejected? Lord, you were dying on the cross for us. That's where you were. Just pray that you would encourage those who are listening and watching right now that you love them, you love especially them. You didn't come to call the healthy, but to call the sick. You didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Lord, you came specifically for the worst of the worst and the most lost of the lost. And even those who are Christians, who feel maybe a duplicity in their heart to say, well, I've got this, this area of darkness or addiction or the secret shame. If anybody really knew me, well, Lord, you really know them. You really know us. And you look at us, Lord, seeing our sin in the bright light of day, and you say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Thank you, Lord, for loving us like that. I pray that you'd touch the person who's watching and listening right now and give them the hope that they can have real love, true love, love that doesn't go away when times get hard. And I pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. I think we went out, <clears throat> but I had to let him finish uh, that testimony. I've seen a 111 number, and uh, the only person I ever knew who really did that was Brother Frank. But um, I didn't answer because the man was uh, sharing his testimony. So um, we thank God for it. And we thank God that he will fulfill anything that we go through, anything we may need. God is able to supply, even give us what we want. And so we tell him thank you this morning. And we remember what was happening in Acts uh, 24 through 27. And we don't want to be that way. Yeah, we don't want to be just throwing stuff in the air and tossing it from one person to another that really does not matter. What matters is that we believe that Jesus is the son of the true and living God, Jehovah, and that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believe on him won't perish but have everlasting life. He sent them so we can live forever, a good life, no crying, no dying, no more tr troubles, pain, aches, none of that. No more bad news, sad news. Uh-uh. So we look into the hills from which cometh our help. All of our help comes from the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. So let's pray out this morning. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for making ways out of no ways, opening doors and blessing us and looking beyond our fault and yet meeting our needs for being for us, and your word says, if you be for us, you're more than the whole world against us. Father, we thank you today for all you've done, <clears throat> what you're doing right now, and Father, what you're going to do, great and mighty things. We ask today that as we depart this morning, Father, you would bless us beyond our wildest imagination. Bless us in ways we never knew we were able to be blessed. Lord, you want to bless us in a mighty way, and we're asking that we're in position, that, Father, you can bless us in a way that you desire. Move today for us in a mighty way, for our family and our friends. Heal those that are sick, God. 
touch and heal their bodies. You heal all manner of sickness and disease. And God strengthen us as we are going through trials and tribulations. Strengthen us today. That God, we will hear you say one day, well done, that good and faithful servant. In an end, come on in. I have a place prepared for you. Father, we ask this morning that you would bless our going out today. Bless our coming in and meet the need in our lives according to your riches and glory by your son, Christ Jesus. Give us spiritual energy and physical energy today to get all that we desire to get done and the things that you would have us to do in Jesus' name. Bless, Father, like never before. In the name of Jesus, we ask it all. Amen and hallelujah. May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent one from another. In the name of Jesus, go today in love and peace. Share the good news of Jesus and give someone something of quality. God loves that you're forgiven. Have a blessed Tuesday. I speak the blessings of Almighty God upon you today, July the 18th. 2023 in Jesus name. So at this time I'm going to say bye bye. We already ran out of time. I won't be playing the last song of the morning. But again, have a blessed day. And we pray the Lord bring us back tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of Jesus in the morning. So at this time I'm going to say bye bye. God bless you. God bless you.